Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Exurga Deus Dissipentur in Amici Eius, et fugi anche oderunteum afacia Eius. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered and let all those who hate him flee from before his face. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. Let's get started with a prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Sancta Michael Arcangeli, defende nos in Proelio. Contra nequitiamet insidias, diaboli est do praesidium. Imperatili Deus, supplicas deprecamur, duque princeps militae calestis, satram aliosque spiritus malignos, qui ad perditionem animarum, pervegantur in mundo divina virtute, in infernum detrude. Amen. <clears throat> Cor Jesus Sacratissimum miserere nobis, Mater Dolorosa, ora pro nobis. Beatus Carolus Domo Austriae, ora pro nobis. Domine ostende facem tuum et salvierimus, Ave Maria Purissima, Immaculata Conceptio Est. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. It's interesting to me when politicos get very, very close to a topic that I know is extremely important to someone like Mike over at Restoring the Faith. And that's usury. Because we don't use the word usury in daily conversation anymore. We talk about things like modern monetary theory and quantitative easing and and banks and finance rates and interest rates and asset bubbles and and market bubbles and all of that sort of stuff. We talk about these things like they're not somehow connected. And taking some time out to get to know a little bit more, um, in part because, well, there was an interview with a business reporter done by Tucker Carlson. It was a fantastic interview talking about the Fed. Now, I don't anticipate that, you, that you've read the book, The Creature from Je- Jekyll Island. And I'll confess, I haven't read the book, The Creature from Je- Jekyll Island. But one of the things that I sort of instinctively clung to back in 2000, actually, pretty much from as far back as about 2004, 2005, all the way through 
um, the crash in 0708, all the way through 2010, all the way up into, um, all the way up at least until 2012, 2013. And admittedly, I got away from it because, well, my focus transitioned over to things more to do with, more directly to do with faith. But one of the things that I clung to that, that not clung to, that's not the right word. Um, one of the, one of the issues that I found myself attracted to was the quote unquote Ron Paul revolution talking about ending the fed. Ultimately, the Fed is a monstrosity. It is a big, overly complex system governed by financial jargon and a bunch of people who bluntly have no idea what they're doing. They know what they're doing is going to cause massive problems for the American people. And I'm, and I'm talking just about the Fed in this case. However, the same thing holds true for the International Monetary Fund. It holds true for the European Central Banks. It, it holds true for all of the banking systems in the West. Because all of the banking systems in the West are predicated on what happens at the Fed. And I've said time and time again that when the world financially collapses, eventually people are going to look at America and say, you're the ones who caused this. Because we created something that was coined easy money. Like, like, and, and everybody kind of knows, oh, well, easy money. No, the Fed is the quintessential outlet for easy money. One of the things, just from a basic physical uh, mechanism aspect that I've learned was the mechanism by which the Fed creates money. And what they do is they, is they purchase treasury bonds from the major banks, 24, ba- 24 banks that are the principal outlet for the Federal Reserve. And I say principal outlet for the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve itself is very much like a Wall Street trading desk. And I feel like I'm being a parrot at this point, but since the mechanisms were explained in this manner, I'm going to explain them in this manner. The Federal Reserve is basically like a trading desk on Wall Street where... Someone comes in and says, hey, I want to I buy, you know, $8 billion of J.P. Morgan treasury bonds. Because these 24 banks have um, <clears throat> reserve accounts at the Fed. And this is one of the reasons why they've been talking about why the idea has been spun. And you may not even be aware of this. The idea was spun that instead of, actu- instead of you having your bank at, say, PNC or Bank of America or Stockman Bank or First Interstate Bank or J.P. Morgan or Chase Bank, <clears throat> what they want to do is they actually just want to just move your bank account to where your bank account is held at the Fed. Now, the first thing that is ominous about this is obviously, since the Federal Reserve controls the spigot, they can actually just immediately shut down your account because, I mean, they're right there in that one room where they can just reach out and touch you directly. And that is, of course, a valid valid concern. However, and it's weird because there's a possibility that they might decide to switch this and instead of and because they because they're running into a risk that the more they run the system the way they're running it 
the more you're going to notice that the richest, it, it's not that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That is true, but it's a trope. It's a trope that everybody kind of, like, you sort of intellectually understand, but you don't see how. It's not that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It's that, it's that the margin between the rich and the poor shifts so that more and more people become poor. So that as, as well-to-do as you think you're doing when you're making 50, 60, 70, 100, $150,000, $200,000 a year, you're not actually any richer. I've said this many times, and I want to put this in perspective so that you understand. If we're going to hold to what the poverty line was, then we need to anchor it something to well before modern, before modern money really came into existence. And so if you were to anchor that in the Middle Ages, then the poverty line is about 10 to 20 acres, about five to six cows, maybe a dozen sheep, a dozen or two dozen pigs, and about maybe 20, 30 chickens. That's the property to house your children, to house yourself and your children, and to, and to hold that amount of livestock or enough livestock where you can feed your family baseline. So you've got gardens, you've got animals, you've got basically everything that you could possibly need. That was, the, because once upon a time, that basically was about the poverty line. Because below, because when you go below that, then you start to like basically be beggarly. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> A cow costs about $1,500, or roughly the same as an ounce of gold. One cow. How many of you have six ounces of gold? A sheep might cost about five or, five or $600. How many of you have five or six sets of five or $600? Chickens are very inexpensive, but how many of you have chickens? What would it cost you to be able to raise chickens at your house on your little one third of an acre? And now you begin to see. You right now do not have for all intents and purposes, even though we have modern refrigeration, modern food preservation techniques, you have the capacity to have dry goods, this, that, and the other, like regardless of what it is that you actually have in your house, you do not have, by and large, what the peasant had in the Middle Ages. And it would cost you an exorbitant amount of money that you also do not have. You today, despite all of your gadgets and gizmos, despite, you know, your central heating and air conditioning and your maybe one to two cars, maybe a couple store and maybe a couple toys like an ATV or a snowmobile in the shed, you do not have what the average peasant had. Most people do not have one acre of land. The vast majority of individuals and families do not have a whole acre of land. 
And even if you did have a whole acre of land, are you using it in that same manner? Are you raising chickens? Are you doing the things that you probably ought to be doing in order to, in order to sustain your life for the long term? The obvious answer is no. There are some people who are better, who are more well off than others. But the obvious answer is that no, 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 that is not the case. It is not the case that you have even as much as the medieval, as the average medieval peasant. And we're going to use the medieval peasant. Let's down it a bit. Let's go two to three acres of land and chickens. How many of you are there? How many of you have two to three acres of land and chickens? Congratulations, you're basically right there. Because you might have, because that person might have also had a horse. <clears throat> We're not as wealthy as our ancestors were. That much is true. And the ones who are wealthy are so high above. The ones who actually are rich, the rich and powerful. They're so high above that it's not even, like it's not even reasonable to try and reach up and to try and reach up and grab them. And the average American, the average person in the world does not have what the average medieval peasant did. Which means that the average person is poorer. than what used to be the people, than, than seriously, the people who used to be the ones always covered in dirt and muck with grime under their fingernails and a slight stench of animal to them. Think about that. The ones who are wealthy have such an exorbitant amount of wealth so far beyond. And these are the ones who are not typically constantly growing in number, but are typically constantly growing in power. The average single-family home price is, is creeping up towards half a million dollars. And that average single-family home lacks the capacity to have the things that the medieval pe- peasant had. And the average person is incapable of actually purchasing that home. You end up renting rooms, and even rental prices are going through the roof. Or seem to be anyway. The markets are kind of funny that way, so in some places it seems to be going through the roof, and in other places it doesn't seem to be moving at all. But in a world where people more and more spend their days, spend their years in transit, where you might live, you know, you might start your life in some place like New York City and then slowly migrate out to New Jersey, 
and then slowly migrate out to like fill it, you know, Pennsylvania or Northern New York or out to Virginia or down to Florida. Over time, on average, people like whole families uproot in America. And they've promoted this because as long as you keep moving, you know, there's some free money involved because people can make money buying and selling homes. You can actually use your, your real, your home as a, as an investment in order to make money. And most of us are guilty of, of falling into this trap. But it's not healthy for human society. It causes many people to not know who their neighbors are. Because why would you bother getting to know your neighbors if you're just going to move in a few years? And we get so concerned about our kids going to school and making sure that, you know, you can finish out high school before, you know, all of these things that the average medieval peasant would look at us and go, what are you, stupid? We've been like, we could dazzle them with all of the great shiny things that we have. You know, the picture boxes that can talk. The capacity to look at a little glass eye and have our image projected anywhere around the world. The ability to speak into a golden microphone and have my voice heard anywhere on earth whenever they whenever you want to hear me <clears throat> and yes i did actually purchase a gold colored microphone as an homage to the great one rush limbaugh because he was the one who made radio particularly the spoken word in radio great And yes, you know, the likelihood is, you know, he died a Protestant. And it's kind of unfortunate. Well, it's very unfortunate. It's, in the eyes of God, it's one of the most unfortunate things that could ever happen. Is for a soul to be lost to hell. But there's a possibility. There's a possibility that God extended his grace even to Rush Limbaugh. Whether or not he did, I don't know. I won't speculate. But I figured since I was going to start an audio podcast, I'd start after this, you know, one of the great ones. But I could dazzle somebody by talking into this little golden ball and have my voice be heard anywhere around the world in tiny little devices that we all keep in our pockets or on computer or on smart televisions or whatever. Wherever it is that you happen to listen to this podcast, the fact remains is that this would dazzle most people. Little boxes that could talk. Be like, wow, what an impressive piece of technology. What an impressive thing. And the ego that goes with it, because we because we as a society have managed to achieve this. 
we as a society manage to make it so that we can look into a camera and project our image anywhere in the world. And the average person can do this. You see this from some of the videos that are coming out of Eastern Europe. You see this from some, you know, I mean, let's face it. <clears throat> Many of our children are addicted to it through TikTok. The ability to make our, to, to bring our image around the world, to talk about the things that we want to talk about, to make our voices heard, even if they don't really mean anything. But very quickly, the average medieval Catholic, because that's basically, because that's what all the medieval Christians were, were Catholic. The average medieval Catholic would immediately see the danger. They would immediately see the danger by finding out when, when they see that the husband goes off to work in some office or some factory or some, you know, or, you know, the post office, UPS, some warehouse, whatever. And then the wife goes to work in some schoolhouse or some hospital. And the children are dropped off with somebody. Some rando that nobody really knows because let's be real, you don't really know your school your your children's teachers. You never took them out to dinner. You never you didn't get together with your kids' teachers for Thanksgiving. You don't celebrate Christmas with them. You don't go on family holiday with them. You don't even really think of them until they call home to complain about your child's bad behavior or they sent or and you don't even really think about them when you go to the parent teacher night if that's even still a thing. You drop them off with a bunch of people you don't know. You send them off with someone you don't know to go be dropped off with a bunch of people you don't know so they could tell you and teach your children and form your children absent your influence. And the average medieval peasant would go, why? Wouldn't it be better if you worked from home? Wouldn't it be better if you were a boat right or a cart right or a wheel right? Wouldn't it be better if you were a carpenter making yokes or, or building machines at home so your children can see you do the problem solving, can see you learn, can see you and learn from what it is that you're doing, can watch mom sew and, sew and make the clothing, can watch mom and dad work in the kitchen, can watch them interact together? can go off and play in the yard and have their responsibilities like feeding the pigs or feeding the cows or feeding the sheep or feeding the chickens and tending to the garden? Wouldn't it be better if everything was held at home where you could pray together, you can work together, you can grow together, you can go to church together? Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be better if that happened generationally to where everyone in, an, in a quote-unquote neighborhood, what we call a neighborhood now, but everyone in a shire was actually related so that you would cut back on the strife. There would be no Hatfields and the McCoys because the Hatfields and the McCoys would be one family, cousins, 
uncles, aunts, grandma, grandpa, etc. Wouldn't it be better that way? And they would be right. They would be right when one of the children of the family of the Shire goes off to seminary and becomes the priest. They would be right when the entire community shares bloodline ties together. See, I don't blame the people in the Fed for being diabolical. They, like everybody else, are just diabolically disoriented. They don't know. We've been walking through the darkness for so long that we don't even know what the light looks like. We wouldn't know what the light looked like. You know, you know when you sit in a dark room? And I mean like a really dark room. I'm not talking like, you know, where you've got a little bit of lamp light coming in through the windows or something. I mean like a pitch black room. You know what happens to your eyes is you get those fake flashes of light. Because your eyes remember the light. And your brain is trying to process it. And so you get those fake flashes of light. And that's the kind of light that we think we're seeing to guide us when it comes to monetary policy, when it comes to the Fed, when it comes to banking. But we came unmoored from the very core of it, which is you cannot loan somebody money and get a return on your quote-unquote investment. Because loaning money as an investment is wrong. And when you take that to its furthest extent, which is what we have today, we have loans upon loans upon loans. We have investments upon risk, upon loans, upon investment, upon upon derivative, upon credit, upon treasury bonds and junk bonds and corporate bonds. We have bank bonds and and treasuries and the whole and and securities, mortgage backed and otherwise. We have all of these things, all of these mechanisms by which all of these people get to siphon off a little bit more money from the money that they hand out to others. And in order to sustain all of that, to make it not collapse on itself, what do they have to do? They have to continue to print money and deposit it so that these systems can continue to move because the branches, the number of people who are siphoning off money is so large that, that a dollar can't just be a dollar. Things you may not have known. In 2010, the Federal Reserve printed more money, well, from 2008 to 2014. <clears throat> Over that period of time, the Federal Reserve printed more money, excuse me, printed 350 years worth of money. And that's significant because the United States had not been in existence for 350 years. It's more significant because the Federal Reserve had not been in existence for 350 years. They managed to print 350 years worth of money in four and a half years. And then in 2020, in March of 2020, they printed 350 years worth of money in months. And to be sure, they weren't the only ones to do so. 
it's quite clear, or more accurately, even if they weren't the only ones to do so, here's basically what happened. They printed off tens of trillions of dollars, hundreds of trillions of dollars. Um, if the estimates are right, they could be anywhere from 150 to 200 trillion dollars, trillion dollars, 200 trillion dollars. That's 200 million million dollars. 200 million million dollars. And then they handed out tens of trillions of dollars to all of the countries that are interlinked in the Western system. Trillions of dollars headed to Germany and to the UK and to France and to all of the, and to, and to the International Monetary Fund. Like, just basically handed out cash money out to the world to keep the entire global economy afloat. Because if they did not, when they shut down for those two weeks to flatten the curve, the entire economic system was going to collapse. But what happened? Two weeks turned into two months in many cases. For countries like Canada, turned into nearly two years. And I say like Canada because you had Canada, Australia, Austria. I mean, you had a bunch of systems. You had a bunch of countries. Where did that money come from? Chances are it actually probably came from the American Federal Reserve. From the, U from the United States Federal Reserve. Weird, isn't it? Because what should have happened was the entire global economy should have come screeching to a halt. There should have been a hang-up. There would have been a surge and a backlog about a two-week back. Like, no joke, if we'd have done it for two weeks... And this is the thing. It was supposed to be two weeks, and it may not have been so bad if it was only two weeks. But it wasn't only two weeks. And that's where the problem came into play. Because if it had only been two weeks, it would have set back the shipping industry maybe about two months, maybe three months. It wouldn't have been that big a deal. You know, we're shut down for the two weeks in March, and then by Easter, everything's back up and running. And there's a backlog in shipping because the ships weren't going to be able to stop. They're, they're like, there was nothing going on with that. That wasn't going to happen. Um, you know, there would have been, you know, surges here and there. It would not have been quite so bad. It still would have been bad, to be sure. Price spikes, oil spikes. I mean, pretty much the whole the whole thing. In fact, you could tell because actually when it was two weeks to flatten the curve, if you remember, it was during that same period we had an oil surplus where they were paying people to take the oil rather than you buying oil. And that was at that legendary $1.50 gasoline across the country. Which, by the way, if you paid $1.50 for gas, that was, <clears throat> that was in fact $1.50 in taxes. You were literally only paying taxes for the gas because you were not paying for the gasoline itself. So whatever it was that you were paying when the prices were down nationwide to $1.50, that was 100% government tax. You want to cut prices on gasoline? You'd cut $1.50 right off the top. 
Just saying. <clears throat> now, the two weeks turned into two months and the stock market rallied. It should have dropped. Think about it. All those businesses should have been shut down. So why did the stock market rally? Why did the Dow Jones break records? Why, when the economy, why, when the, when the physical economy was limping, was the stock market going through the roof? Why was your 401k doing so well? Why was your IRA doing so well? It's not because it was a distraction, because to be sure, nobody was distracted. They had to have some place to put all of the money. So the money went into Wall Street. The money went to the big banks, and the big banks bought stocks and bonds. And that's what happened. That's why all of this, the whole stock market seemed to go through the roof when everybody was sitting home, social distancing and quarantined. Does that make sense? Everything stops. There's nobody actually making anything, moving anything, selling anything. There's nothing actually moving in the economy, and yet all of those asset prices went through the roof. And with them, the housing market, because the housing market started going up and up and up. And as the months went by and people started selling their homes and moving to places that were less psychotic, who bought the homes? BlackRock, Blackstone, Various other hedge funds, major investment bankers, Chinese corporations. Because the house would go on the market and they'd say, hey, yeah, we'll buy that house and we'll pay another $50,000 on top of it. We saw it happen. We watched it happen. It was weird. People are selling their homes and yet the market's going up. What should have happened was there should have been a glut in the housing market as everybody was selling their homes in, you know, in places like New York. And so the housing prices in New York should have gone down. Did they? No. The housing prices in California should have gone down. Did they? Six, think about this, 697 empty homes. Six, 697, 697,000, 700,000 empty homes. The net loss of people from the state of California. Did the housing market go down with 600,000 empty homes? Did the price of a house with, an, with a surplus of houses go down in California? No, they didn't. They went up. Some of those houses in California sold for half a million dollars, a million dollars, two million dollars above what the asking price was. What? How does that even work? You have a glut of 600 of 697,000 homes. There are now 690,000 there are now 700,000 empty properties. And the price of those empty properties went up. That doesn't work. The empty houses should have gone down in price because people were leaving. The market value of those homes should have gone 
down. And yet they didn't. They went up. And at the same time, faster than housing developments could be built, they were being bought in places like Texas. Housing development of 149 homes purchased at a million dollars over the asking for the 149 for the 149 homes. Purchased by who? Well, it certainly wasn't a middle-income family. It wasn't it wasn't some you know, former Silicon Valley tech exec moving out, moving out to the suburbs in, in, in Texas. Cause he doesn't need 149 homes. He just needs the house he's going to live in. And suddenly that tech exec might mess around and end up being a renter. Why? Because somebody else owns the home he was going to buy. The impossible increase in the sale price of homes during a time when in many places the price should have gone down, and in other places the price should have gone up, but it certainly should not have gone up to the degree that it should have. The average house is now, the average poor person's house is now $300,000. Think about this. Let me say that again. The average poor person's house is now $300,000. I have a close friend of mine who bought a home for 300 and something, I think 310, 305, 310, something like that. I don't know. I don't know precisely, but but I know he paid about $300,000 for his home, and it's a fairly decent house. Fairly decent house. But he doesn't have enough land to raise chickens. He doesn't really have enough land to raise a family. I mean, he does. He's got enough. I mean, he's got enough house to raise a family. But he doesn't have enough land to raise chickens. He doesn't have enough land to raise sheep or any kind of livestock. He doesn't really have enough land. And land isn't quite particularly of the quality where he can have a garden. And I suppose it's not that big a deal because he's not the type anyway. But that same house, in 2006, when I was coming home from Afghanistan, or yeah, 2006, when I was coming home from Afghanistan, that same house should have only been $90,000. Maybe 95, he had a a full basement. $90,000 thousand dollars and ninety thousand dollars honestly would have would have was more than I would have paid for that house <clears throat> because I don't think that three hundred thousand dollar house is worth three hundred thousand dollars it's got the extra rooms and all that and okay well that's great and it's got a you know a, a, an okay size piece of land But it's not a $300,000 house. 
is not what I envision as a $300,000 house. In fact, my grandfather's house in Florida in a nice area of Florida was $90,000. My uncle ended up buying out his two siblings because the house obviously would have been uh, divided between the three of them <clears throat> for roughly, I think, right around $30,000 a piece. No, it wasn't even. It was $10,000 because, yeah, no, it was because it was $32,000. $32,000. And at least that house had an orange tree. That would have been about the right price. So take a moment and actually think about, you know, how much how much is your house? Because we can't even talk in terms of money <clears throat> adjusted to reality anymore. If you have a three-bedroom house, three-bedroom, two-bathroom house on a quarter of an acre to a third of an acre of land, that house should only be $30,000. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you got some extra amenities, might be willing to go as high as $50,000. Why? Because it should approximately have cost you roughly the same amount as your wardrobe to buy the house. And the clothes in your wardrobe. And I'm pointing to the clothes in the wardrobe because we all know that we have, by and large, most of, have, most of us have far more clothes than we'll ever actually use on a given day. And the dressing clothes of Louis the of St. Louis the Ninth, the clothing that he would have worn as king, notwithstanding, you know, the, the sackcloth shirt that he very likely actually wore, but the clothing that he wore as king, one outfit would have cost one house. And maybe that's rightly so, maybe not. I mean, it's nice that we can make really nice things for very inexpensive. It is nice. Until you stop and think about the people, <laughs> the people that you're not paying for all of that excess niceness. <laughs> now, I just spent... 40 minutes knocking down Western society where we're at. And that's because it's supposed to be a re reality check. Okay? A reality check. If you have a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house, it should have cost only about $50,000. Three-bedroom, two-bathroom house on a third of an acre. And I don't care how nice the acre is. You might pay more for it if you're up on a hill with a, with a nice view. You might pay a little less if you're, you know, in a little tighter suburb community. But the fact is... 
the fact is, is that if you have a three bedroom, two bathroom house, it should be right about $50,000. And I can guarantee you that if you're living in a three bedroom, two bathroom house right now, one, you didn't pay $50,000 and two, it's now worth way more than $50,000. Artificially, because most, because all of that excess money is actually nothing. It's vapor, it's toilet, it's not even toilet paper. Toilet paper is actually worth more. And I think that's why there was a run on toilet paper in America because we all sort of instinctively knew that toilet paper was more valuable than money. It's like, oh, there's a run on toilet paper. Uh, There's probably a reason because toilet paper was more valuable than money. So you may have an income of $100,000 a year, but what do you really have? Seriously, what do you really have? Let's compare JP Morgan, no, excuse me, Rockefeller, when he was the richest man in the world. How much more money did he have than anybody else? His worth capped out at nine digits. Nine digits made him the wealthiest man in the world. Nine digits. How much is the wealthiest man in the world worth today? Twelve digits. And remembering, of course, that in order to get those additional three digits, you're in multiples higher than those nine. If you were a millionaire, you were among the world's elite. Now, if you're a millionaire, you're just kind of well-to-do. If, you, if you're worth $1 million today, you're just kind of well-to-do. You're not really actually worth anything. Because the really valuable people, the ones who have much more wealth and power, now have thousands of millions, tens of thousands of millions, hundreds of thousands of millions. And in the meantime, let's say you let's say you have a net worth of um, well, let's say you own your own house, you own your own home, you don't actually have a mortgage. <clears throat> Maybe you have a business or something like that. And let's say you're worth a million dollars. You might only have you know ten or twenty thousand dollars in the bank. Okay, cool. I mean, you're doing much better than the average person. <laughs> but what does that mean? It means you're actually own- <laughs> If you're worth a million dollars and say half of it is your home, 
and maybe some investment assets here and there. If you're worth a million dollars today, you're worth about as much as the blacksmith in medieval France. And I say that because we have an image of the blacksmith in medieval France, because you've seen that in Kingdom of Heaven. It was a pretty decent, it was a pretty decent depiction. If you're worth a million dollars U.S. today, you are the blacksmith. You're the tailor or the carpenter. You might be a cartwright or a wheelwright. Let that sink in. Because that's a million dollars. It's a million dollars to be able to actually run your own business. You'd be worth a million dollars, and that's assuming you don't have any debt, because if you're in debt at all, if you're in debt, you're worth less. You're actually at a lower standard. And sure, you've got the nice clothes. And maybe you even actually have some really nice clothes. Maybe you have a bespoke suit or two. And maybe you pick up really nice, like you spend you spend a little bit of extra money on the very nice athleisure slacks, athleisure pants or whatever. You, you pay for the $145 jeans or whatever. You've got the $60 t-shirts. The $150 polo shirts. Maybe you, maybe you, maybe you actually, I mean, chances are you don't. <clears throat> Honestly, chances are, I mean, if you're worth a million dollars, if you're actually worth a million dollars and you worked hard to get there, chances are you actually still buy from Old Navy or something similar. And maybe you have a couple of extra passions. Maybe you've got the airplane or whatever. And the airplane's really kind of hard to factor in because, I mean, there were no airplanes in medieval times. There was nothing like it. But if you've got the really nice car, then you've got your, then you've got your, your Clydesdale horse, your very nice horse or whatever. Do you see where this is going? Like, you may have the toys... But the toys don't really factor in because the toys don't factor in if you don't have the fuel. Whereas if you had the horse and you had the property, then you could at least grow the hay and the horse wouldn't go hungry. Capiche? Because you would be fully self-sustaining. But even if you're worth a million dollars, if gas prices go to eight, nine, ten dollars a gallon, you're going to feel it. And since chances are in this day and age, if you have a million dollars, you still don't have all of the things that you need to be able to sustain yourself and your family. And that is assuming, honestly, let's be real. Let's assume that you even have a family. Because the average American household is not 
of family the way it was understood in, med in medieval times. So it is a guarantee that while you personally be, may have more money, you are most definitely not more wealthy than a medieval family. And that was brought to you by the Fed. Because we designed the system, which was originally supposed to be a function for the people. We designed the system in such a manner that there was only one way for the money to flow. The money flows from the Fed to the top. And then it trickles down to everyone else if it trickles down. You want to talk about trickle-down trickle economics? That's the Federal Reserve. Anybody who, anybody, like no joke, anybody who attributes that to Ronald Reagan is a moron. Because the fact is, is that is actually the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve prints money, generates the money, puts it into the big banks. The big banks then trickle it down. It makes its way to you in the form of loans. It makes its way to your companies in the form of loans. It makes, it makes its way from the banks down to you. It has always been a trickle down. But the thing is, is that the more you pump into the system, the more it gets clogged up at the top because people instinctively realize that the more money there is in circulation, the less it's worth and the more money you need. And you end up with the likes of Bill Gates, who owns more farmland still than the total land mass of the country of France. Why? Why? The Fed. Because Microsoft is mediocre at best. It's ubiquitous, but it's mediocre. And yes, they expanded out into phones and this, that, and the other. That's cool. They bought up the other companies that they needed to buy up in order to get into those markets. With what? With money on loan from the Fed. Facebook is entirely funded by the Fed. They went IPO and somehow became worth billions of dollars despite actually having nothing to offer. Some spicy memes and some news articles, a little bit of communication here and there. What do they actually offer? Certainly nothing to the individual user who is the asset as they sell your information to everybody else. Brought to you by the Fed. Twitter, which barely even runs advertising, and yet is still worth billions. How? The Fed. Google. I don't even want to get started. Because at least they actually have products and services that they offer for free to most people which should be the black flag because at that point you are the product. Because if you're using a service for free, then you're the product. Brought to you by the Fed. And in the case of Google, the Fed, and the IMF, the Bank of China, and whatever other central banks.
They operate on a strata wholly removed from everyone else. Why? Wall Street. Facebook is worth nothing. Even, even farming out, even by illegally farming out all of the data that they have, they're really still worth nothing. Because how much money do they generate for the companies like Amazon and all of these advertisers? Seriously, when was the last time you clicked on an ad on Facebook? Maybe you've done so twice a month. Is that worth billions and billions of dollars? Seriously? Even if everyone in America clicks on four ads and spends 50 bucks on each ad or a couple hundred, but let's go, let's go, let's go way out of it. Okay. Let's say that you, let's say you see an ad, you spend $500 and you do that twice a month on a Facebook ad twice a month. Is that really worth the billions and billions of dollars? that is spent on getting your data so that they can predict two purchases? Because I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't trust any of the ads I see on Facebook. I don't trust any of the ads I see on Twitter. I don't trust any of the ads, well, I trust, no, actually I don't typically trust most of the ads I see on YouTube. And in these some 15 years of using YouTube, I think I've clicked on four ads, four, and made one purchase because it was just too cool to to resist in all honesty. One purchase in the 15 years that I've been using YouTube, one. Oh, and I won't be doing that again because as cool as that purchase was, it was terribly impractical. And I didn't even spend, I spent 50 bucks, 50. Now, don't be, to be sure, I've investigated other stuff. But I'm certainly on the outer end, like the outer end of that funnel. Oh, uh, you got to get into marketing and all that stuff. We're not even going to dive into that because that's not. Anyway, the bottom line is, is that every, if everybody in the world spent 50 bucks once on, on a random ad for a random company, maybe that would be worth well, no, if everybody spent, if eight and a half billion people spent 50 bucks on one ad in one month, all right, so that might be worth $38 billion. Is it worth 200 billion? I think that's actually where the price point is on Facebook is right now. Is it worth that much money? Really? Is it worth? And the problem, the biggest problem is, is that there are so many middle, when you have a spigot that's overflowing with money like that, then you end up with a whole bunch of people who are in there trying to make money from doing nothing like human resources departments who do literally nothing for a company. Seriously. They got spreadsheets and reports 
I don't understand how, like seriously, I don't understand how, how an HR department in a company even functions. And I'm pretty sure that company would function just fine with one hiring manager and that's it. Oh, but it's to protect against lawsuits. Is it really? Companies have HR departments for what? You get a hiring manager and then you get a pay man payroll manager. Is that your HR department? Because it better be. That literally better be the, the sum total of your HR department. Is somebody to handle payroll and somebody to handle hiring. And that's it. And oh, hey, by the way, once you got that company basically filled, I mean, bruh, hiring manager should be an additional duty on somebody else's job because there should be nobody who's hiring every single day. Oh, by the way, if your company is large enough where you need an entire personnel department, you might want to look at your company. Oh, but you need to be able to get, deal with all the... Bro, we have computer programs for that now. And that's really where we run into the issue. Most of the jobs in a company, in a large corporation, are made up. And they're made up, why? Because the company is too damn big. Now, maybe it's necessary for some companies. Truly, we're not going to space with a, it, it, a small business is not building rocket ships to go to space. Fair play. You're not getting the, well, I don't, I, actually, I don't know. If automation carries on the way it is, we may get to that point where, where a small business will be building rocket ships. I am still keeping an eye on a, on a company called Relativity Space, where they're 3D printing, 3D printing rocket engines. Because that makes it possible for a small business to build spacecraft. And that's really where I want to get to. I want to get to that point. Why? Because if a small business can build spacecraft, then a small business can build air aircraft, and a small business can build, build cars. And if small businesses can do these things, then we can rebuild communities. If we can bring those grand, high-level technologies and bring them down to where small businesses can actually now do the jobs, where you can run a small where you can run a small business and do these fantastic things then i could be a spaceship builder who has you know a dozen kids who all help the company as we as a family become known as the spaceship builders or space rights that's W-R-I-G-H-T-S, space rights. <clears throat> and that means there might be, you know, in the next town over, some sky rights. And the cart rights in the next town over might actually build cars. 
If these things can be done at the smallest level, at the, at the lowest possible level, if we can pull this technology down to the lowest levels, <coughs> then we can effectively end massive, bloated, choked up bureaucracies like the Fed. Because all they've done is they've made you less wealthy. There have been many people to climb up to the upper level, to the upper atmosphere when it comes to wealth. But eventually you're going to see that all they really did was they stretched the gap between the uber rich and you. And the more they do that, the harder it is for you to climb the ladder. That's why the smartest people today go into finance so they can figure out how to climb the ladder because we've been chasing money so long that it's now part of our official national DNA. Easy money is part of our DNA and the love of money we all know is the root of all evil. And we've figured that we could manage to manipulate this society. And other people have looked at America and said, they're the land of opportunity. Don't you get that? I am so sick of hearing that. This is not the land of opportunity. I mean, it is after a manner, but it's the opportunity to fulfill all of the wildest dreams of avarice. And the wild dreams of avarice is the very quintessentiality of the love of money, which is the root of all evil. <coughs> And you can see it because sprouting from the root of all evil, sprouting from this global love of money is the transgender agenda, is the transhuman agenda. It's the World Economic Forum. It's all of these people who think that because they have the money, they can do whatever. Because we have figured out the grand systems of finance and we now know that we can now heal the environment and re-engineer the human species after our own image. Sorry, bro, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Ain't happening. And the problem that you run into <laughs> the reason why we're in brinksmanship with Russia <clears throat> the reason why we're in brinksmanship with Russia is because there's a certain bit of traditional manhood, humanhood in Russia. And while they too suffer from, you know, the love of money, they can kind of look across and see the utter loss, the utter darkness that the nations who have bought into this whole modern monetary theory thing, they can see it for what it is. Nobody wants to be a banker. I certainly didn't want to be a banker. I held with history. That it would be far more noble to be a soldier than a banker. <clears throat> that it would be far more noble to take the crusade 
than to finance it. The Knights Templar got suppressed for usury because they began to develop the modern banking system. The unfortunate thing is, is that they got suppressed for usury and then the Christian world said, look, you cannot be a Christian and do these things with finance. So the Christian world did what was obvious. We handed it off to non-Christians so that they could be the financiers. And the Muslims decided they didn't want to have any part of it either. Do you see where this is going? <clears throat> so we handed it to the people to whom in the Old Testament, God had given them the weapon of usury to use against foreigners. <clears throat> Why does it always seem like when you get around big finance, it's those people? Because there's still something left in the Christian DNA, particularly in the Catholic DNA, I'd say, that understands that we can't touch this stuff, that this stuff is evil. So why are all the banksters seemingly of the same ilk? Because you can't be a Catholic and you can't be a Christian and really dive into this stuff because this stuff is theft. And if the most of the world is Christian and only a tiny sliver of the world is not, then it's going to be that tiny sliver of the world that takes advantage of these weapons. And they're going to have all the money and they're going to have all the power and they're going to create these new creatures. And while we continue to see that we're being oppressed, not with violence. And, and to be sure, I think that's probably the thing that makes it feel most vile is because you don't feel justified in committing acts against uh, acts of violence, of physical violence against people who just manipulate your dollars. You feel like you should be somehow smarter, that you should be able to actually just manipulate back. And I don't know that that's necessarily going to work. I think at some point we're going to actually have to just go into those offices, string these people up, and hang them from the uppermost windows. Because we can't touch these systems. <clears throat> we can't use them. There's no way to use them for our benefit without crossing the line. But we all want to take advantage. We needed to be able to raise our children. We needed to be like we we've put ourselves in a position that we absolutely need it. And we've made ourselves serfs to the Fed and to the IMF and to the European Central Bank. And they're trying to they're currently fighting their war against someone who knows instinctively that these people, this is what they do. Which is why he's talking about dropping bombs and he's talking about launching nukes. But even he knows <clears throat> that the world isn't going to see nuclear war as justified against the people who are trying to kill him with the dollar. It makes the dollar, the ruble, the euro, 
the most insidious of weapons. Because these people do deserve a bullet to the head. But if you give them the bullet to the head, then everybody looks and goes, Oh my God, he's a monster! You know it's wrong. It's the source of the outrage. You know, on some fundamental level, the Occupy Wall Street people are right. The people like Bernie Sanders, who are crazy about, well, if we're going to do this, we should, there should be free health care, and there should be free schooling, and there should be free broadband internet. And to be sure, there everything should be free. But how do you get there? You can't get there. Why? Because you can't just make it all free, because then your labor becomes worth nothing. <clears throat> And if your labor becomes worth nothing, if you end up working for nothing, <clears throat> remember that's one of the four sins that cries out to heaven for justice. <clears throat> and more and more of us who work 40, 50, 60, 90 hours a week more and more of us who put in our days to try and build something for the future. More and more, our labor is becoming worth nothing. Because those people all the way at the top decided they were going to dump $200 trillion. $200 million, million dollars into the system. For what? So that Wall Street could maintain its hegemony so that the banks could continue to deny you loans and give to people who, I mean, seriously, <clears throat> carbon credits? They're busy trying to put into place ESG. Why? Because it's their new thing. It's the new pet project. It's if they can control the finances, if they can direct society, then we could supposedly get to where we're trying to go, right? But in the meantime, wheat goes up in price, which means bread goes up in price, which means dough goes up in price, which means pizza and hamburgers go up in price. It means cereal goes up in price. It means feed goes up in price, which means meat goes up in price. <clears throat> And at the end of the day, it means everything goes up in price. Why? The Fed. Because these people are addicted. And they're addicted because they've put themselves in a position where they can't go back and undo what they've done because they will break the whole thing. The whole thing will implode like a submarine that's gone too far into the Marianas Trench. And instead of the air floating to the surface, it's going to crumble, crush, and sink to the bottom. We're in too deep. And they don't know how to stop. They don't know how to stop without managing to make themselves really look bad. 
And when I say really look bad, I mean actually legitimate have you outside their houses with torches and pitchforks ready to kill these people. <clears throat> it is a tragedy. If I had to choose between the total financial collapse of the world and a nuclear holocaust, I would choose the nuclear holocaust. Because the total financial collapse is a slow death. It's death and despair. But it's death and despair while some people still make it. It's death and despair when the quote-unquote lucky get away with all of the wickedness that they've done. And I would prefer a nuclear holocaust to that because at least there's a chance that these people pay for their sins. We're all going to pay for our sins and we all are due payment. Excuse me. Our bill is due for payment for our sins. <clears throat> but the reason why I would prefer nuclear holocaust to total economic collapse is because many of these people will get away with it. Many of these people will still be able to survive. They'll still be able to thrive in the total economic collapse. <clears throat> Whereas all of those people are so useless, they'll be the first ones dead in a nuclear holocaust. And that tickles my sense of justice. Is it right? Meh. I don't know. But if I had to pick between an economic collapse and a nuclear holocaust, if I had to pick between the economic collapse that is coming for the entire world and a nuclear holocaust, I will take the nuclear holocaust because at least as soon as that's done, we can begin to rebuild. Whereas the economic collapse that's coming, that's coming for us is going to take 10 or 20 years before we truly understand what the furthest and fullest effects are. And we're never really going to be able to wrap our brain around it. And let's be real. They're going to be able to spin, oh, well, it wasn't really that. Because, I mean, think about it. We went through an economic collapse in 2008, and they managed to spin it so that we gave them more power to do it again in 2010. At least with a nuclear holocaust, these people lose control. So they want to pick a fight and go to nuclear war with Russia? Go for it. Be my guest. Those of us who survive will at least be able to pick up the pieces. Those of us who survive will at least be able to begin to rebuild and start again and maybe figure it out from the start what we should have known from the beginning. And maybe in some of these random places across the world, traditional Catholicism can rebuild. Because the principles of the Catholic Church, as they were understood for all ages, work at all times, in all places, for all peoples. <clears throat> but if this Weasley 
system is allowed to continue, they'll do it again and again and again. They will not stop because they refuse to learn. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. If you made it through this extremely long episode, I'm amazed. God bless you, and the Virgin protect you. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 